Welcome to part four of It Sees You When You're Sleeping, a horror holiday audio drama in six parts. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, I would recommend that you start at episode one. You can find it on your favorite podcast app or at the website, itseesyousleeping.com. I'm Phil Rickaby, the writer and performer of It Sees You When You're Sleeping. This is the second part of a trilogy of holiday audio dramas. You can find the first, St. Nick and the Big F*** Up, at stnicknickandthebigfup.com and all the places you usually find podcasts. You can support this audio play in a few ways. You can make a donation through the virtual tip jar. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. You can also support the podcast by sharing it on social media. If you want to post about the show on Twitter or Instagram, use the hashtag ISYWYS for It Sees You When You're Sleeping. And you can tag me if you like. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And my website is philrickaby.com. If you enjoy this audio drama, please rate and review it at Apple Podcasts. And make sure you hit the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along at the website, itseesyousleeping.com. And stick around for just a minute at the end of the episode for some important credits. As a child, I was always a bit confused by the idea of Santa's elves. I think the first time I became aware of them was in the Rankin Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, as they treated Hermie poorly just for wanting to be a dentist and singing We Are Santa's Elves for some reason, as though perhaps Santa needed reminding. Up until that point, I'd assumed that Santa did all the toy building himself through magic or really nimble fingers or something. But once Rankin Bass revealed them to me, I accepted the elves without question. Of course, I accepted it all without question. All of the things I saw about Santa, the, the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy too, but they didn't loom quite as large in my mind as Santa. When I heard the story of the Shoemaker and the Elves and, and saw the Keebler Elves on TV, I wondered if they were all the same. Were there elves all over? Like, like one group with Santa, another group doing favors for lazy cobblers, and yet another faction making cookies? It was confusing, but I didn't dwell on it. I didn't really care about the Shoe Elves or the Cookie Elves, not like Santa's Elves. But I never considered the relationship between Santa and the elves. And when I got older, now and then I heard old, old stories of elves, the ones that aren't watered down for children, and I wondered, why did we ever put these creatures in the hearts of children? Because the real stories of the elves were not heartwarming or, or even cute. They were terrifying. Stories of stealing children from their cribs, tricking innocent people into ruin or servitude. Often someone ended up dead. In those stories, the elves were like a winter storm, unpredictable, harsh, and dangerous. 
And as much as I loved Christmas, I was determined that when I had kids, I didn't want them to be exposed to those creatures, even in the watered-down, safe-for-children version that Rankin-Bass gave us. But then, as soon as Susan was old enough, I was showing her Rudolph and watched her cheer on Hermie and how she thought even that old foreman elf was kind of funny at the end when he got his teeth examined. And then, when she had questions about Santa and his elves, I made up heartwarming stories. And I forgot about the darker stuff, because with Susan there was nothing but light, even in darkness, even in sadness. Because in my child's eyes, Christmas spirit was shining. But this thing from last night, that was more like the other stories I'd heard. The ones not safe for children. Milo was certainly not safe for children. Not safe for Susan. In the morning, when I felt safe, I checked the outside door to my bedroom. I was certain that I would see long scratch marks from the creature's claws running down the door. But there was nothing. How could there be nothing? Those claws, those talons on the creature's hands were sharp as knives, and I'd heard them digging, scraping into the wood. How could there be no marks at all? Cautiously, I went downstairs. Milo was back on the sofa with the children's A Christmas Carol exactly as I had left him. And yet, I knew he hadn't been. I knew he'd moved. I knew what he'd become. I'd seen what he was, felt him pushing against my bedroom door in the night. I hadn't imagined it. I hadn't. Then Susan was beside me. She looked at Milo, and she laughed, and then she went into the kitchen for breakfast. I left Milo, and I poured Susan a bowl of cereal while I tried to decide what to do about Milo. Susan went upstairs to get dressed, and I returned to watching Milo, who continued to sit, unmoving and frozen on the sofa with the children's version of A Christmas Carol open in front of him. I left the elf and went to get dressed so I could walk Susan to school. When I returned from taking Susan to school, the elf remained where it was. But I was not going to be fooled, and I was not going to let this thing remain in my house. I picked it up, and I stood there holding it tightly in my fist, squeezing. I couldn't just throw the thing out in the garbage. It had moved on its own, so I needed to do something more than just tossing it out of the house. I went into the kitchen, and I grabbed a roll of duct tape. I wrapped it around Milo, twisting it around so that he was completely covered three times over. Now what? Something to put him in. I had a small cash lockbox that I'd purchased a while back for a project I never completed and it had sat on a shelf in the closet waiting for me to do something with it. Well, this sure seemed like something. I needed weight. The box 
needed to be heavier for what I had in mind. So I went outside and I grabbed a couple of rocks from the garden. It wasn't cold enough for snow, so rocks were easy to find. I put them in the lockbox and then I put Milo in the lockbox and I locked it. And then for good measure, I wrapped the lockbox in duct tape too. I drove with the lockbox down to the harbor. Rush hour was over and traffic was light, so I made it to the water quickly, which was good, because I didn't want to be with the elf any longer than I had to, even when he was locked in a box. I got out of the car and walked out to the end of the pier. It was a quiet morning. A chill in the air, but the lake was weeks away from freezing. On any other morning, I'd feel peaceful standing on the pier like that, looking out over the water. But not today. There was nothing peaceful today. My hands were still shaking. They hadn't stopped shaking, and I felt like I was holding my breath. I stood there clutching the lockbox, trying to steady my hands. I looked around to make sure no one was watching. The last thing I needed was some cop coming over to scold me for dropping something off the pier, or worse, demanding that I explain what I was doing. But there was no one watching. I tossed the lockbox into the lake, watched it sink, and then went back to the car. Only then, as I started the car, did my hands stop shaking. Only then did I finally exhale. The night after dropping Milo in the lake, I slept peacefully. I hadn't had to come up with some ridiculous thing for the stupid elf to do, and I didn't have to worry about its malevolent aspect in the house whispering in my daughter's ear. I woke and went down to get breakfast ready, humming to myself. In the kitchen, Milo sat atop a stack of dishes impossibly tall. There were mugs and glasses and plates and bowls, all creating a tower that should have crashed down the moment it was built, but it hadn't. And there, sitting on top as the tower teetered ever so slightly, was Milo, smiling his wild grin. My heart stopped. Susan came into the kitchen. She looked tired like she hadn't slept, but then she saw Milo on that teetering tower and squealed in delight. She said that when Milo didn't come to talk to her last night, she was worried that something had happened to him. And that's when I knew that it wasn't just that Milo went to her in the night. No, she knew he was there and she welcomed him. And that thought chilled me to the bone. I didn't want to be in the house with that thing any longer, and I wanted to get Susan away from it, so I suddenly decided that we were going to go out for breakfast. I told her to get dressed, and we would go to the pancake house. She loved the pancake house because they would put chocolate chips in the pancakes if she asked. 
She'd whisper to the waitress, motioning with her finger to come close as though she had a secret. She'd quietly ask for chocolate chips, and I would pretend I didn't know. Today, Susan devoured her usual short stack of chocolate chip pancakes, but I barely touched my breakfast. I had no appetite. I couldn't stop thinking about the elf. And that was part four of It Sees You When You're Sleeping. Part five is coming next week. Remember to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and to let me know what you think using the hashtag ISYWYS for It Sees You When You're Sleeping. Included in the music from this episode was an excerpt from Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies performed by Kevin MacLeod, released under a Creative Commons attribution license. Some sound effects in the episode were from zapsplat.com. Thanks for listening, and I will see you again next week.